We are continuing our study of prayer this week. Uh, how many of you know this man? Who is that? Yeah, Shaquille O'Neal. I remember when Shaquille O'Neal came into the NBA, I was living in Orlando. The Orlando Magic drafted him, and instantly they went from being cellar dwellers to being uh, uh, national contenders. Seven feet one, 325 pounds at that time, and uh, selling Papa John's. He may have eaten a little bit more uh, since then, but, um, uh, but he went on to win three national championships with the LA Lakers and another with the Miami Heat. How about this man? Do you know him? Unless you are a die-hard basketball fan, my guess is you do not. His name is Stanley Roberts. He, too, is over seven feet tall. He, too, was drafted by the Orlando Magic. Uh, he uh, was, uh, also played at LSU, just like Shaquille O'Neal did, and uh, yet you have never heard of him. In fact, here is his Wikipedia page. Stanley Covert Roberts is a retired American basketball player who played center. He was said to have the potential to be the best center of all time. Stanley Roberts was a flop in the NBA. No one really much has heard of him. And so here are two men, similar size, similar talents, similar experiences. One goes on to become one of the greatest basketball players ever to play the game. The other had potential. One was a, someone who flourished, the other one's one who flopped. And why is it that some people flourish and others flop? Why do some succeed and others fail so miserably? What, what's the difference between the two? Uh, and I've asked this question not just about people in professional sports, but in business, but for me, I've asked this about us in our own spiritual journeys. Why is it that some people, as they continue on in their journey with Christ, become more generous, more compassionate, more gracious, more committed to the mission of God. And other people continue on that same journey and they become, well, how do I put it? Just cranky, old, crotchety Christians, right? Uh, with little zeal for, for the ministry of God. They are, are more concerned about their own personal preferences than they are about other people. They are more concerned about their comfort than they are about the mission why is it? They, these are people that will go to the, the same church, sing the same songs, sing the same, uh, hear the same sermons, read from the same word of God. One will flourish and the other sort of flops. What's the difference? Well, uh, you know, as you, th you think about those things, about what the, the difference is, uh, you, sometimes we look at our own lives and we feel like, you know, I'm kind of like the Stanley Roberts of spiritual life, Right? Uh, my, my life isn't quite turning out the way it wants to be, you might be thinking. And if you feel that way, uh, you know, think about your own journey. When you get to the end of your life and someone writes your Wikipedia page, or someone speaks at your funeral, will they say about you, this person was a gracious, compassionate, sold-out believer for Jesus, or they say about you, wow, they had so much potential. They had so much potential. Well, if you feel like you're one of those, this passage is good news because as we look at these verses, uh, we find that the Apostle Paul actually outlines for us the, the key 
to flourishing rather than flopping. How we can be as Christians, those who are living dynamic spiritual lives, that it's not just for the so-called super saints, but it's for us. And here in this passage, we find out the difference between flourishing and flopping. So what's the difference? Well, let's begin, before we look at the solution, make sure we understand the problem. Let's look at the problem. Now, in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, the passage we just read, the Apostle Paul begins by reminding us that we are in a spiritual battle that there is a war going on, that there are real spiritual powers and forces that are out to get you. Now, he's already talked about these spiritual powers earlier in Ephesians chapter 2 because he says that all of us, all of us at one time were enslaved by these dark forces, but we have been rescued, not by our own works, not by our own effort, but God himself has rescued us. He took us out of the kingdom of darkness and he delivered us into the kingdom of light. And so even though we've been rescued out of that slavery, that does not mean we're out of the battle. These spiritual forces are still out to get you. You know what they say about paranoia. It is not paranoia if they really are out to get you. And in this case, they are out to get you. They want to keep you enslaved. They want to keep you sidelined. And that's their their goal. Uh, They want to keep you out of the battle. So the battle, the warfare, is not just over there in Turkey and in Syria. And it's not just in the mission field. The spiritual warfare is going on right here, right now. You're always in it. There's no place to escape from it. And so these spiritual powers want you to be weak, they want you to be ineffectual, and they want you to be disengaged. So four times in this passage, Paul tells us to do the same thing. He says, stand. And when you've done everything else, stand. And so that you might withstand, similar word, the attacks of the devil. And then he says, stand. So what's his point? Stand, right? (laughs) Pretty clear. We are to stand. What he's saying is there's an army coming out against you. You've got your spiritual armor on. They're coming at you, and you need to stay there in the battle because the temptation is going to be for you to run away, to flee the battlefield, to disengage, to fall to the temptations that they have for you. But you need to stand. Now, to give us the courage to stand, he goes on and tells us that God has given us his armor. He's given us an armor. Now, this armor is not anything that we do. Uh, This is nothing we provide. It's all the armor that God provides. So he says we're to put on the belt of truth. The truth of what? The truth of what God has said. The truth of the gospel. We're to put on the breastplate of righteousness. It's not our righteousness that's going to protect us. It's Christ's righteousness. We hold up the shield of faith. Faith in what Jesus has done for us. Faith that we are saved by the gospel. We are put on the feet. Let's use prepared with the gospel of grace, knowing that we stand only by what Jesus has done, and we have the sword of the Spirit. And so in all these things, he says, we have the armor of God, and the armor of God is more than capable of sustaining the attacks of the evil one. And therefore, you don't need to fear as you go into battle. The enemy cannot hurt you. He cannot touch you. Your armor is better than Kevlar. It is impenetrable. And so As you realize this, you're standing there with your armor, the enemy is attacking, and he keeps saying, stand, 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 stand in the battle, stay engaged. Well, why don't we? Why is it, again, that even though we have the armor of God, is it that the armor of God's not strong enough? That's not it. Is that that we don't have power to stand? That's not it, because we've been told uh, that greater is he who's in you than he is in the world. So we, we have the strength, we have the power, our enemy is not too strong, we are not too weak, our armor is not insufficient. Why don't we stand? Well, 
to answer that question, I think Paul is going to direct us to this whole idea of prayer. Uh, that because prayer is the key. Now, experts have studied the difference between people like Shaquille O'Neal and Stanley Roberts. And they've looked at why do some people succeed and flourish while other people fail. And of course, talent has something to do with this. But they say talent actually is not the key ingredient to success in life. Uh, Angela Duckworth, psychologist at uh, University of Pennsylvania, not Penn State, Pennsylvania, Penn, uh, she has uh, done a great deal of study on this, and she says the key ingredient to success, more than talent, is something known as grit. Grit. And uh, what is grit? Well, she goes on to define grit uh, this way. She says that grit is uh, passion and perseverance for long-term goals. Passion and perseverance for long-term goals. And then she adds this, that everyone who has a strong sense of grit also has a strong sense of purpose. Passion, perseverance, purpose. Those are the key things to success. And by the way, she studied all sorts of successful people, like people who win national spelling bees. Why do these people win and other people don't? Well, what makes a Green Beret? We have some of those around here. Why do people succeed at West Point? Uh, what makes a, an excellent school teacher? Uh, she studied all these different people, and across all those domains, she found it is not necessarily the smartest, it's not necessarily the most talented, it is those who have the most grit. Passion, perseverance, and purpose. And uh, so now that clarifies for us why some people flourish and others flounder, but is grit just one of those things that you've either got it or you don't? Where do you get grit? How, do, how, how can we become gritty Christians? We need some gritty Christians, don't we? How can we be gritty Christians? And, and sometimes I look at people, and I, I've had uh, friends who were, were uh, some that were professional athletes, more that were college athletes, and they all exemplified this. They had this determination, and I always looked at them and go, well, I'm not like you. In fact, nobody's like, you're not normal, right? To work as hard as you do, be that dedicated, I wish I was like that. I'm the guy who flunked out of two colleges, that's who I am. Uh, you know, how do you have this? Well, I think many of us sort of resign and we say, I'm not like this. But the Apostle Paul doesn't do that. He said there's actually a way we can become gritty Christians. Yeah, he actually explains it. Because as he goes through and he talks about the armor of God, notice this. After exhorting us to put on the armor, in verse 18, he gives us a final instruction. And it's the exhortation to pray. Now, when Paul does this, he's not saying, put on the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, get the shield of faith, and now add to all that prayer. That's not what he's saying. And it doesn't show up in our English translations as clearly, but grammatically, verse 18 modifies verse 14. Just what that means is this, uh, in case you don't remember English, is this. What Paul is saying when he says stand, how do you stand? You stand by prayer. When you put on the armor of God, how are you to put on the armor of God? You do that with prayer. That prayer actually is to characterize the whole process, that everything we do is through prayer, and it's in prayer that we find those three ingredients of grit, passion, perseverance, and purpose. Well, how? Well, let's uh, look at these in reverse order and begin with purpose, how prayer gives us purpose. 
You know, God does not call us simply to pray for prayer's sake. Prayer is a spiritual discipline. It is a means of grace that God has given to us. But we don't pray just to kind of put in the checklist, uh, checklist, check, I prayed. We don't, prayer is not just something you do just to do. And we see this in Paul's own model of prayer in this passage. Uh, notice how he prays. Uh, he prays in the same way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. We've been talking about this all year. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said we're to pray, our Father who art in heaven, and then what's our petition? And he says, hallowed be your name, and then what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That he says, as the followers of Jesus, that our mission is to be praying for the coming of the kingdom of God, that we live in a world that is broken, that is messed up, that needs a restoration. And the only thing that is going to fix our broken world is the reign of Jesus coming down in such a way that everywhere you look on the earth, God's will is being accomplished here just as it would be in heaven. That is not the world we see right now. But imagine what the world would be like when that happens. And so the Apostle Paul now, as he prays, notice what he, he asked them to pray. He, he tells them in verse 18, he says, make supplication, another word for prayer, prayers for all the saints, the word saints there doesn't mean special Christians, it means all Christians, and pray for me. And what do we pray for? That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Now, now notice what he's praying. You know, Paul, at this point, you notice in these verses, is in prison. Two years earlier, he was arrested in Jerusalem on some trumped-up charges. He has uh, been put, put in many different places. He is now in Rome awaiting trial. He's going to get out of this trial. He's going to be set free, but within five years, he's going to be imprisoned again, and he's going to die. He's going to be executed for his faith. Now, if I'm in prison... You know what I'm going to be asking you to pray for? Get me out. I don't like it here. This is terrible. This is not a country club prison, by the way, right? He's in a Roman prison. And he said, but that's not what he asked them to pray. He prays what? He says, pray for the mission of God. Pray that I will be a good ambassador of Christ, that I will proclaim the good news, inviting people to share in the kingdom of God. He doesn't ask to pray for his freedom. He, he doesn't ask to be freed from his hard circumstances. He is so consumed with the mission of God that that's what he asked to pray for. Paul has a sense of purpose when he prays. He's not just praying to pray. He says, I'm praying for a purpose. Now, Christian, if you find that you are struggling to pray, the problem may not be that you lack discipline. The problem may be that you lack purpose. That, that your life is, is, is all about you, and that's just not a big enough purpose for your life. The, Paul Tripp says that sin is like shrink wrap. He says shrink wrap is this amazing invention. You take it, and you wrap up some beef jerky, and it seals it tight. You want to store a boat for winter, you get shrink wrap. They really do this, and you put it around the boat, it's stored there for winter. It does wonderful things. It conforms to the size and the shape of whatever it's around. But he says sin is a lot like shrink wrap. It's sin, it, it always shrinks down your life to the size of your life so that your life becomes consumed with nothing more than my wants, my needs, my feelings. You're consumed about your personal preferences and very little else. 
And so that's what sin does. And the problem with that is your life is not a big enough purpose for your life. You need something bigger to live for. You know, back in uh, World War II, the, the Nazis had all sorts of evil tortures for the people who were in prison camps. One of those was to rob them of their sense of purpose. And one of the things they would do is they would march the prisoners out of the concentration camps. They would have them take a pile of stones and move that pile of stones from this place to this place. The next day, they would get them up, march them out, get this pile of stones and move them from this place back to the original place. The next day, same thing, over and over, meaningless work. And it was so psychologically damaging that the prisoners would lose their will to live. We are people who need purpose. We are, we're people who need purpose. And God has given us a purpose. God is, is, is going to be bringing his kingdom, his full reign to the whole earth. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. One day, uh, there will be no poverty. One day, there will be no sickness. One day, there will not even be death. One day, the whole earth is going to flourish and that's gonna be the kingdom of God and we get to, to announce that as, as God's ambassadors, we get to announce the good news that the kingdom of God is coming and we get to go up to people and say, you see how the world is now? Let me tell you how it's gonna be. Don't you wanna be a part of that? Don't you want to share in this good news? Don't you want to be a citizen of this coming kingdom? I mean, now that's a reason to get up in the morning, isn't it? I mean, yes. You made me nervous. Um, to think about what God is doing instead of thinking, you know, I, I, wonder, I want to get up in the morning because just something trivial. And he says, invites us to be part of this purpose. And when we are consumed with the purpose and the mission of God, suddenly our prayers have passion because we look at this world, even as Drew preached last week, and you look at this world and you see it in its brokenness and our hearts break along with God's heart. And so when we have purpose, we will pray with passion and perseverance. Well, so purpose, and that leads us then to perseverance. And Paul calls us to persevere in prayer. Look at verse 18. Verse 18, he describes how we should pray, and, and notice the universal nature of prayer. He uses the word all four different times, but one of the alls there is that we are to keep alert with all perseverance. Now, when you think of the word perseverance, you think of hard work, right? And that's Paul's point. Prayer is hard work. Uh, it does not come easy. Uh, it requires effort. And yes, it even requires discipline. We cannot simply drift into godliness. You can't say, I'm just going to let go and let God. That doesn't have, it's not how it works. That's not how it works. Paul says in Philippians 2.20 that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You know what that Greek word for work means? It means work. That's what it means. It means we are to work for it. We are to be diligent. We are to put effort into it. Now notice he doesn't say we are to work for our salvation. We don't work for our salvation. Jesus has already done all the work necessary for our salvation. Uh, we are, receive salvation uh, as a gift. We get it by, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus. Uh, yet, as those who have been saved, we're to make diligent use of the other gifts that God has given to us, particularly prayer, uh, so that we might grow in this. We don't pray to earn the Father's approval. We don't pray so that, uh, so that we can get spiritual merit badges. Uh, we, we pray 
uh, because and and f- live and do these things so that we might live and function as those who are loved by God. Uh, as Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort; it is opposed to earning. But there's still effort involved. And so, uh, in the study of highly successful people, again. One of the things they noticed about this is the highly successful people tend to have some talent, yes, and they tend to enjoy the work that they do. But what distinguishes the highly successful people from, 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 from others is that they're willing to put in the hard work that is not enjoyable, uh, what some experts have called deliberate practice. They're willing to go in and, and go to, uh, get up early and shoot free throw after free throw after free throw. They're willing to go in and run mile after mile after mile. The things aren't so much fun. Rowdy Gaines was um, uh, an Olympic swimmer. He won the gold medal in freestyle. He was clearly the best in the world. And Rowdy Gaines often talked about how much he loved swimming. And, and how much he had a great love for it. And, uh, and so he was asked one time what he, he thought about practice. What's practice like? He says, you mean waking up at four in the morning, uh, walking to the pool in the dark, in the cold, in a bathing suit, jumping into the pool and swimming yourself to the point of pain that you can barely endure it? You mean, what's that like? Is that what you're asking? But I love swimming. But I love swimming. He didn't like the practice. He didn't like the work, but he loved swimming. In the same way, what happens is when you, you have that goal and that purpose and that passion, uh, you're, you're willing to push yourself to do the work and to do the part that is not fun because there's something greater that is driving you, a greater sense of purpose. Uh, and sometimes uh, that's what prayer is like. It's just hard work. It's just hard work and, and it's diligence and it's, 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 that, it's that discipline and saying, okay, I'm going to get up today and I'm going to pray and I'm going to do this and I would rather sleep in and I'd rather do other things, but I'm going to do it because I have a higher purpose. But that still raises a question. And what is it that will drive you to pray with a sense of purpose that is bigger than yourself and to persevere when it's no longer enjoyable. Why do some people do that and others still don't do it, even though they might know about the purpose? And I think that leads us to our third and most important aspect of spiritual grit, and that is passion. Passion. In verse 18, Paul says that we are to pray in the Spirit. Now, at first, that sounds rather mystical, like I'm supposed to have this spiritual experience. I'm going to let go of my mind. I'm going to just pray. I'm going to maybe speak in tongues or do something of the sort. That is not what he's talking about. And the reason we know this is Paul has talked a great deal about the Spirit throughout the book of Ephesians. In fact, he mentions the Holy Spirit by name at least a dozen times. And one of those dozen times is right before this in this exact same sentence. Uh, here in this exact same sentence in verse 17, he refers to the word of God as the sword of the spirit. So what is it that the spirit uses to get us to pray in, in the spirit? It's the, it's the word of God. And so to pray in the spirit doesn't mean just kind of t- letting your mind wander. It means that your prayers are informed and saturated by the word of God. Prayer and the, and the word go together. Another place in Ephesians that we see prayer and spirit together is in chapter 3. And this is one of the, uh, the most amazing prayers we find in the Bible. Uh, a prayer that, uh, that we could use to pray every day for ourselves and for those we love. In chapter 3, Paul prays this prayer 
for the Ephesians, and, and even for us, if you read it carefully. He prays that they may be strengthened with power through the Spirit so that, here's the prayer, they may be grounded in love and know the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God in Christ. So to pray in the Spirit means to pray with a sense and awareness of God's amazing love for us. Uh, it, it's, it's an awe about the love of God. Here is the key to passion. You want to be spiritually gritty, you got to have passion. Here's the key to passion. The key to passion, to being passionate about God, is understanding how passionate he is about you. And when we begin to grasp how deep and wide and high uh, the love of God is in Christ Jesus, it transforms us. The more we grasp the love of God, the more power of the Spirit we have in our lives. More love, more power. See, standing firm takes more than willpower. Standing firm takes desire. It requires passion. And what the Bible shows us over and over and over again is we are not rational creatures. We are loving creatures. We do not act, I, you know, no matter what you've been taught in school, about human beings being rational beings. We are not rational beings. We have the ability to ration, but that is not what governs our life. You know, no one, uh, you know, think about temptation. Temptation does not appeal to your intellect. It, sin is never smart. It just, it just never is. It is always foolish to, to, to sin uh, for the Christian. Sin always appeals to, the, to desire. You know, nobody looks at a Krispy Kreme donut and says, wow, I think that's really good for me. That has never happened. Well, you look at it and say, I know that is not good for me, but I also know that it tastes good. My desire will overrule my intellect every single time, right? Unless I have a greater desire, something else compelling me, uh, th th I'm going to always respond to whatever the greatest desire is in my heart. And so it's all about desire. In order to stand firm, you have to want to stand firm. And when you begin to grasp how deep the Father's love is for you, you will stand firm. I mentioned that uh, last Saturday I was at the funeral for just one of my best friends in the world. He, uh, he died while trying to retrieve his boat that had drifted away, and he drowned. He was not in, in great health. Seven years ago, uh, Ted had had a, uh, a really serious heart attack, and a funny story about that, don't have time to get into, but... Um, I know, funny story about his heart attack, but it's true. Uh, and um, well, after he'd had the heart attack, he realized he needed to lose some weight and get in shape. And so he did really well for a while. And then after a couple of months, he just went back to his old ways. And, um, and so we're on the phone and I'm saying, hey, Ted, um, you know, I, I, about, it was about the same time I'd lost some weight. And I said, hey, Ted, I, I'm going to tell you about something that really helped. I have this app on my phone. It's called My Fitness Pal, and it's helped me a lot. He says, yeah. I've got my fitness pal. My phone's a lot thinner now, you know. Uh, he had no intention of using that at all. He, he had no desire. You know, intellectually, he knew what he needed to do, but he didn't want to do it. Well, his kids gave him a Fitbit. And, uh, and of course, that's not going to help. But then he made this deal with them. He says, I tell you what, I will walk the number of steps I'm supposed to walk if you will read my emails that I send to you. And he would send these very long emails to them, encouraging them in their spiritual life. 
Uh, very, you know, it, they might, they'd ramble a bit, but, but he sent me several of these, and, and they're just challenging them about living for the kingdom of God because that was his passion. And he says, as long as you read those emails, I'll walk the steps. See, see uh, you know, his intellect could not get him to do what he needed to do. Nagging by a friend helped zero, none. His love for his kids motivated him. That's what transformed him to do these things. Now, they only read for a little while. He didn't keep it up long, so the story doesn't end well, but you get the point, right? As uh, love will, will, is what will drive us. Love is what will, will change us. Discipline alone will not do it. The one thing that will change your life is the love of God because whatever uh, controls your affections controls your actions. So how does prayer help? How does prayer help? Well, you pray for yourself the very thing that the Apostle Paul prayed in chapter 3, verses 14 to 19, that you might know the magnitude of the love of God in Christ, or as he says, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, uh, that we might begin to grasp that love that surpasses all knowledge. When you pray for your kids, what's the thing you want most for them? Good grades? That's nice. But don't you really want them to be consumed with the love of God? What about your spouse? Do you want your spouse to be a little nicer? Maybe you do. But don't you really want them to be consumed with the love of God? Your grandchildren, your friends. What about our city? Wouldn't it be an amazing thing if our city was consumed with the love of God? What about our church? How would it change our church if we were so gripped with the love of God and we so were so in love with him that we become a self-forgetful people? That it's no longer about my wants, my needs, my feelings, my preferences. But it's about God's glory and God's mission and longing for his name to be praised and throughout the earth. Do you imagine how it would change us? Now as a church, we're praying for 1% of our people to go uh, into uh, to missions. Do you imagine if we begin to pray this, that God might send more than 1%? Can you, I mean, it's the transforming power of this. Passion, perseverance, and purpose. We need all three, but the key is passion. So this morning we're coming to the Lord's table that we might remember what Jesus has done for us, that our hearts might be gripped for his love for us, that we might live out of love for him. So let's pray as we prepare to come. Oh Lord, we join with the Apostle Paul in praying that we might know your great love. Lord, we know something of it, we can describe it, we can tell others about it to some degree, but we must confess that, that our hearts sometimes miss out on how deep it is. We don't really see the depth of our sin, and because of that, we oftentimes miss out on the, the riches of your grace. And sometimes we can see the depth of our sin, but be so in bondage, our sin and shame, that we miss the depth of your grace. And so, Lord, we pray that today, you would show us how wide and deep and high your love is for us, even as we come to the table. A love that is so rich and so beautiful that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Grip our hearts, O oh Lord, with this passion, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.